Good morning, church. My name is Bobe. I'm a children's pastor here, or I'm like the only one here that serves as kids, <laughs> like the pastor for the kids. Yeah. So it's good to see you guys. I don't think any of you guys expected me to be here so quickly, but you know, soon the kids' ministry is starting, so I got to enjoy all the time I can get up here, right? Um, so before we get started, I just want to pray for us, so let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for just how awesome you are. We thank you that we can come here and worship you and be free to just come before your feet with whatever we have. God, I pray that as um, I deliver your word, that ears would be open, hearts would be open, and eyes would be open to hear you, to see you, and to feel you in their hearts. Um, yeah, I pray that you would anoint my lips. God, guide this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so we, like Pastor Bob said, we're continuing our series called Messy, and for the last three weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, or the Corinthians, and we've just been seeing how messy the church can really be. I think oftentimes we have this, like, expectation or standard of what church should look like, but if you know the Bible and you know yourself, we're very, very far from perfect. In all of Paul's letters to all the different churches, he encourages them, but he also addresses issues, whether it's unforgiveness amongst people, division, sexual immorality, idol worship, or gossip. Paul speaks the truth in love to the ugly and the messy parts of the church. This, he never writes these letters to shame these churches, but to put them back on track to be to being a gospel-centered community, one that brings glory to the name of Jesus. And I believe the message is the same for us, that we would see God's desire for us personally and corporately to be centered on Jesus and Jesus alone. So today's sermon title is Made to See. So look at your neighbor or whoever is sitting, you know, the closest to you and tell them, you were made to see. Go ahead. Yes. You were made to see. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So I grew up in the AG church, which is like, it's Assemblies of God. That's the denomination. It's like a Pentecostal denomination. And every summer, the Northeast Korean sector of the denomination, they would host summer retreats for youth groups from small churches. And it was always at Christian Academy. How many of y'all know Christian Academy? All the eggy water, you know what I'm saying? It's not cute. But there were a lot of tears and a lot of like holy moments in that place. I'm sure you guys can all agree, right? And so every time I would come back from that retreat on fire for God, and I'd be like, yo, I'm going to, this is the time that I'm going to read the Bible front to back. I'm going to make it to Revelation. You know, you know what I'm talking about. That's like the spiritual high, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we always start, right? The first book, what is it? It's called Genesis. Thank you. Thank you to that one person. It's called Genesis, and you make your way through Exodus, and you're lucky if you make it to the laws in the, in the book of Leviticus. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you definitely didn't make it there. You got lost in the desert with the Israelites, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then... The next summer, you start again. Maybe for us, it's like a New Year's revolution. Then, yeah, resolution. You start in the new year or, you know, whatever. 
And so, like, one time I got sick of starting at Genesis because I think at that point I probably read it, like, four or five times. So I started in the New Testament, probably got to John, and I was like, ah, Acts is okay, and then stopped, you know. Um, But for me, the motivation and the determination behind the desire to read, it was to prove my love for God that, like, I thought if I say I love the Lord, like, I love Jesus, then I should at least read the Bible. Even though, you know, there might be a lot of truth in that statement, the motivation for reading the Bible wasn't really love, but it was actually guilt. I felt guilty that I never read the Bible all the way through because all the real Christians seem to do it, right? Every year they read the Bible cover to cover and they can recite Bible verses off the top of their heads. That's not John 3.16 because everybody probably should know John 3.16, right? And... You know, in the Bible, there's no commandment that says, thou shalt read the Bible front to back every year, you know. But that's kind of like a rule that became like a thing for me in my walk with God. And I think we all have certain standards of what a Christian should look like or what our walks with Jesus should look like. My standard for what it meant to be a Christian, someone who loved Jesus, was based on more of like what I did or didn't do, like my actions, than my actual intimacy with God. So like, I want to ask, like, what's your standard? What's your standard for your relationship with God? How do you know who's a good Christian or if you yourself is a good Christian? Because the standard that you have for yourself, it's probably, probably the same standard you will judge other people's spirituality, right? You know, for example, if somebody's not serving the church or if you're not serving their church, you're not good with God. Or if you don't really have all this Bible knowledge, then you don't know the Lord. You know, we have certain things like that, I think. And serving at church is so important and so is knowing your Bible. You should definitely read the Bible. It's a great book. Um, God wants us to be an active part of the church community. And he gave us his word so that we can know it and be transformed by it. But if our primary motivation in our walk with the Lord is duty and guilt, then we're living a more legalistic life than a life of freedom and transformation. Legalism is when your relationship with God depends on your performance, your works, and not so much on the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And the ironic thing about legalism is that it's actually rooted in biblical principles, but it takes like a step or two further than necessary. It keeps you bound to your actions, and often it hardens your heart to the revelation of the Holy Spirit because you're used to seeing with your physical eyes and not your spiritual eyes. When I think of legalism, I think of the Pharisees and the New Testament. You know, they knew the Torah by heart, and they were always around to point out which law of Moses wasn't being followed. In their eyes, they were doing the right thing by abiding by all the laws, but the laws were actually what blinded them from seeing the Messiah they had been waiting for. They were looking through the lens of the law and not of the spirit. And according to Paul, because there was a veil over their eyes, they could not see the glory of the spirit. The law was blinding the Israelites from holding the glory that is in Jesus Christ. 
Verse 16 in today's text, it says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Most of us here, I think, if not all of us, we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the moment we did that, we were given the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and our helper. So then why is it that we're not experiencing the freedom of verse 17, right? Because it says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Could it be that, could it be that the veil over our eyes is the, they're like the expectations and the standards that we've set for ourselves Or maybe it's the values of culture that's making it hard, making it difficult to understand and experience God's truth. Today's text is like an excerpt from chapter 3. But in order to fully understand that, we have to get the context of the letter and get familiar with the chapter. This letter is written by Paul to the Corinthians, as you know. And he wrote it after like a painful visit. We don't really exactly know all the details of this visit, but all we know is that it wasn't really good. And despite the painful visit, Paul's affection for the church of Corinth is still strong, and many wanted to reconcile with Paul. Then there were some who were getting very critical of Paul. And so in the beginning of chapter 3, Apostle Paul explains that he doesn't need to prove himself. Because this church, the church of Corinth, is the letter of approval. The church of Corinth Corinth is the result of their ministry. And even though it's not written in stone, they were written, they're the written tablets, and it's been written in their hearts. And Paul can be confident of this, not because he's relying on his own competence, but because His competence comes from God. Verse 6, it says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here, he's stressing the fact that the current ministry is not of the old covenant, but of the new. And the new covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So at this point, you're probably like, what's the old covenant and what's the new covenant? And so the old covenant was made way back in the Old Testament. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he confirmed it through Jacob in Genesis 28, that their descendants would be as many as the stars. They will be brought back into the land of their people, and God will not leave them until he fulfills this promise. Then during you know, the trip in the wilderness, God solidifies his covenant with the Israelites through Moses, and gives them the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, which is very extensive and very specific. There's like hundreds of these laws. And to all of this, the Israelites agree that they will do as the Lord commands. But it really doesn't take them long to violate the commands because when Moses was up in the mountains getting all of this information from the Lord, they built a golden calf, an idol, right, to worship because Moses was taking too long. When Moses saw what was happening, he got so pissed. He threw the tablets that he had spent, and he told them to, like, get it together, and he went back up into the mountain the second time. 
That's just like my version, my summary, but you can definitely find it, you know, in the book of Exodus, the real details. But that's like basically what happened. And all throughout the Bible, we see that the Israelites obey the laws, disobey the laws, I mean, over and over again. You see, the Israelites, they were freed by God's grace. The Lord heard the prayers of his people and he rescued them from Egypt. They didn't rescue themselves. Yeah, they did the walking and stuff like that, but they certainly did not part the Red Sea themselves, nor did the manna fall down from the sky by their doing. Nothing good was of their own doing, but of God's and God's alone. It was God who did that. All of the requirements of the law that they were trying to keep, they're impossible to fulfill on their own. Those are impossible things to fulfill because no one is righteous enough on their own to stand before God. They needed something bigger than themselves to make it possible. The Pharisees and the religious people of Jesus' day, they held on to these laws so tight that they, that, that like these laws that they could not even like satisfy themselves and they were using them to judge others. And the irony of the law is that even though it was meant to guide the Israelites, it wasn't what was going to save them like they believed. A word comes to prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 33, 31. It says, um, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Then, I mean, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Amen. That's a great prophecy, isn't it? The prophecy God gives Jeremiah proves that the old covenant was not the saving grace, nor is it ours. The Lord says, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The new covenant God makes with his people, not just the Israelites, but it's for all of us, that our minds, our hearts, our soul will belong to God and we will be his people. It's clear in this prophecy that something was coming that will wipe away the old and replace it with the new. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus came to earth, a new covenant was written, not on a stone tablet or on a scroll, but in the hearts of those who believed. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the law so that no longer would condemnation, bondage, and legalism be the standard for those who love God, but one of love, forgiveness, and freedom. And with the new covenant, we are promised the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and our helper, who is with us and allows us to see the glory of God. And it moves in power in the midst of us. 
there are always going to be people who want to measure you to their own standard. For the Pharisees, it was the law. For the Corinthians, they wanted some proof of Paul's credibility. It wasn't enough that Paul was the person who shared the good news of Jesus with them. It just wasn't enough for them. The ministry of the law kills, but the ministry of the Spirit gives life. That's what it says. The law, it's based on performance, much like legalism, and it's very limiting. But the ministry of the Spirit is defined by the glory that is in the presence of the Lord. Moses knew the glory of the Lord. He cried out asking God, God, show me your glory. Moses knew God knew God so intimately that it says that they were like face to face, pretty much like BFFs. When Moses was up in the mountains in the presence of Yahweh, he radiated the presence of the Lord in his face. It was so bright that people could see that his face was radiant. Even for Moses, who knew the Lord in such an intimate way, it was a fleeting glory. But we have a glory that surpasses in comparison to what Moses got to experience. We have a glory that is unending, one that does not need a veil, because when Jesus died, he tore the veil that was separating us from the Father. So no longer do we need a mediator, but we can have direct access to God. Our performance, the standards we place on ourselves and others, it doesn't matter anymore because Jesus became our righteousness. And it's through our faith in Jesus that we can have communion with the spirit of the living God and live in freedom. It's the spirit that makes us see. And we were made to see when we said yes to Jesus. You know, I think you can really tell when somebody's been walking intimately with the Lord. It's not something you can necessarily see, like with your eyes sometimes, but there are times where literally people's faces change because the light of Jesus has shined upon them. But there is something in our souls, I think, that recognizes when the glory of God has come, either on a person or in a place. And more often than not, it's because people or that person have been spending intentional time in God's presence seeking his glory. There is a freedom and like a deep confidence that people carry when they have been in the presence of God. It's almost like the radiating thing that Moses had when he spent time with the Lord in the mountains. I think when I think about like this, I remember the first time I thought, oh wow, that's what freedom looks like. And that was actually at the retreat that I grew up going to in youth group. There were like these two guys that came from like California. And you know, it wasn't because they were like dressed differently or like that the previous speakers were like kind of too old for us, but they just operated in this freedom. They were so like laid back. Maybe it's like the Cali style, I don't know. But what really defined For me, the fact that they were living in freedom, they were experiencing the presence of the Lord, is when I was, like that year I had been serving at the children's ministry. And the two guys that came, they were friends. And one of them, he was in charge for like the Sunday school. And he literally just like brought, like he just said, Holy Spirit come and our kids just like were laid out. 
And he was operating in this authority, this spiritual authority that can only come from people who, from people who spend time with the Lord. I mean, like my fourth graders were just like, you know, for like a good 20 minutes, I want to say. And the same thing was happening in the youth group part where kids were just getting visions and they were getting words of like prophecy and like, it was crazy. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before, but they were so normal, you know? They weren't like, oh, I gotta read my Bible. They weren't like that. They were so chill and so normal. And I was like, man, that's a cool Christian and that's what I want to be. That's what I thought when I was younger. But now when I look back, I think that's the kind of, authority I want to like operate in and it's not just because I'm a pastor but that's just I think at the heart of every believer you want to see miracles happen you want to see healing happen you want to see God come you know and invade the space where you are helpless and hopeless think if I could give like another example is the one like one person I look up to as a person of faith is my mom actually Growing up, she'd take us to early morning prayer every Saturday, and I get up because they give us bagels, and you know I couldn't have like two if I wanted to, so I did that. You know, I was like, anyway. So <laughs> she would take us even to like revival services at church, you know. And granted, my Korean is pretty good, so I could like understand everything. But she she would always take us, me and my two younger sisters. And any time a guest speaker came, she would take us at the altar call and made sure that we got prayed for the amount of pastor's hands that's been on my head. My mom, she was such a prayer warrior that like the times I would go to early morning prayer with her, I couldn't pray next to her because she was like so deep in it with the Lord that it was like intimidating. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that, but I I would always like go like two rows back and pray because I couldn't be near her. And she didn't just go to early morning prayer on Saturdays to take us. She would go every day. And it wasn't because out of duty or out of guilt, but it was because she desperately needed the presence of the Lord. And she knew how sweet, how transformative, how freeing it could be. And honestly, I didn't really see her, like, read the Bible that much because I know she doesn't really like reading. But she knew the Bible very well, too. And even at an early age, I could tell that my mom, she knew the Lord in a personal way because, you know, like I live with her, right? So I would see her go through all these like hard times, you know, not like family life is tough and life as an immigrant family is tougher sometimes. And we would go through these like really dark seasons. And even in those dark seasons, she never shut God out. She would always go commit herself in the presence of the Lord. And there was freedom that came from that, even in the midst of the most dark, dark seasons of our family's life and her personal life. You know, like, and I'm so thankful that she invited me to join her, to pursue God in that way, that she invited me to just come to the presence of the Lord And every time I would go, God's glory would just come. It wasn't always like fire, but there was a deep sense in my heart, a deep sense in my spirit that knew that the Lord was working in me. And so I think that's the invitation for us here in this morning, um, if the praise team can come up. Verse 16, it says, But 
whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, or in other words, reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The last verse is so amazing. When we spend time with God, when we get in his presence, when the glory comes, the Spirit that is in us is transforming us to become more and more like Jesus, less and less of us, and more and more like Jesus. Isn't that the desire of every believer? Is that your desire today? You know, I don't know what kind of veil you guys have over your faces today. It might be shame that you've been carrying for a long time that separates you from the Lord. Maybe it's bitterness that makes it really difficult for you to see God, what God is doing in your life. Or maybe it's legalism, that mindset that makes it difficult for you to experience the true freedom that is in the presence of the Lord. You know, whatever is covering your face from the glory of God, I want to ask you, will you lay it down before him today? Will you let the Spirit search your heart, be open to the work of the Holy Spirit? Because it's in the presence of the Lord that you are going to find true freedom, true healing, and true restoration. It's in the presence of the Lord you're going to be able to see the way God intended us to see.